0: good morning to everyone. Our text today is found in Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 1. Again, that is Paul's letter to the Galatians, the very first chapter, and we will get there in just a moment. As I was uh, coming up here, Teresa put a, a slide up on the screen behind me. There you have it. Uh, Some words from Martin Luther, I I don't remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure uh, this phrase was something he declared uh, in one of his sermons on Paul's epistle to the Galatians. I'm pretty sure it was from Galatians. And he declared the following, we hold that man is justified through faith. From this article, no wavering is possible, even if heaven and earth. Pass away, And so the Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, proclaimed that statement, made that statement 500 years ago, more or less, give or take a decade, 500 years ago as he found himself in that pitched battle with the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the opening phrase, we hold that a man is justified, uh, there's his thesis statement. I mean, Martin Luther, he was wrestling with the question of all questions. How can a sinner be right in the sight of God? Uh, We're sinners, you and me, here we are this morning, room full of sinners, however finely dressed we might be. Sinners, by nature, born in sin. We have within us uh, this propensity, this inclination, this innate principle whereby we are, in fact, governed by selfish ambition. And this selfish ambition corrupts, mars, colors every thought we have, every word we speak, every deed we perform, whereby even though our deeds externally might be good, they are unacceptable in the sight of God because they flow from a polluted fountain. That is our problem. We are sinners. Uh, The dilemma, the question of all questions is this, how can a sinner enter God's presence? How can a sinner be acceptable in God's sight? How can a sinner be just, justified, declared righteous in the sight of God? Well, Luther's answer, very straightforward. There you have it. Through faith, dot, dot, dot. I left a lot out. Through faith in whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. That was his premise the foundation of his thinking, that as sinners, we can do nothing. As sinners, we contribute absolutely nothing to our salvation. We are completely passive. The Lord Jesus Christ is active. And the Lord Jesus Christ alone is righteous. He is the only one who has ever lived an obedient life. He is the only one who did not have a polluted fountain. Everything he ever did, everything he ever said, every thought that ever passed through his mind flowed from what? Love for God. Absolute, pure love for God. And as such, he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled that righteousness which God requires. And then when he ascended the cross... And those three hours of darkness fell upon him. He uttered those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He went through what? Hell itself. The penalty that was ours by virtue of our sin. And so we are passive. Christ is active. Therefore, to be right in God's sight, to be accepted by God is simply a matter of what? It is through faith. Faith does nothing faith gives nothing faith offers nothing faith contributes nothing faith is simply the instrument by which we receive christ who has done everything and then martin luther added rightly so from this article from what i have just said this point no wavering is possible even if heaven and earth pass away. What's he saying? If you err here, in this matter, you err for eternity. It has eternal consequences. If you subtract from this great truth that we are justified through faith alone, in Christ alone, if you subtract to it, from it, or if you add to it, you have undermined the all sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have rendered the gospel what? Ineffective, void of any meaning. This is an article from which there is no wavering, even if heaven and earth pass away. That was extremely significant in Luther's day as he was fighting against the Roman Catholic Church. The Catholic Church sound in Christology. I mean, in terms of their understanding of the person of Christ, they never denied the substitutionary offering to the Lord Jesus upon Calvary's cross. They never denied the need for grace. They never even denied the need for faith. What was the problem? They added to it. They added to it. And basically, they they, they came up with this idea. Look, original sin, that sin problem is wiped away at baptismal regeneration. That's when it's done away with. You're now a blank slate. The problem is this. You still sin. Those are demerits. But you can also do good. Those are merits. And hopefully by the time you arrive at the end of your life, your merits outweigh your demerits so that you can be justified. Here's the problem. For many of us, our demerits outweigh our merits. Oh, but we're so thankful for what? The pantheon of saints. Because they had more merits than they needed. And at the head of the pantheon of saints stands Mary, the mediatrix of all grace, and so you have this treasure chest in heaven, filled, flowing over with the merits from the saints. Well, I need merit. I need something to outweigh my demerits, my sins. How do I get it? The Pope has the key. He alone can unlock that treasure chest. And those merits and graces can flow to you. Well, how does he do that? Through my participation in the sacraments of the church. And so salvation is not in Christ alone, through faith alone. No, salvation is this combination of, yes, what Christ has done, making my salvation possible, but it is now contingent upon my merits, outweighing my demerits in this hope, this hope, but uncertain hope that I will be justified in that day. And Luther said, no. Actually, he said it a little stronger terms than that, but you get the gist of it. No, no, no. No, if you add anything, you have destroyed it. No, we are justified through faith alone in Christ alone. And so that was what he was all about at the time of the Reformation. And you go even further back in time, it is exactly what the Apostle Paul was arguing for in his epistle to the Galatians. Next slide, Teresa. You thought I'd forgotten about you back there. No, no. And here you have it then. Paul's epistle to the Galatians A very simple outline. It will become more complex as we proceed. But here's the gist of it. Paul begins with a salutation, basically a greetings. Hello. And then he comes away with this, he infuses, inserts this word of caution. There's a problem in the churches at Galatia. And he recognizes it from the outset. It must be addressed. It must be remedied. And it concerns the gospel. And then he goes off on these four major divisions. The gospel revealed. Chapter 1, verse 11, through to chapter 2, verse 14. The gospel explained in the remaining verses of chapter 2. The gospel defended chapter 3, much of chapter 4. The gospel applied the remainder of chapter 4, all of chapter 5, into chapter 6. And then he repeats different words, but saying the same thing, his word of caution, as he brings his epistle to a close, and then finally, a benediction. Well, two Sundays ago, we began with what? The salutation. And in that salutation, we noted that Paul, right from the outset, identifies a couple of problems in the churches at Galatia. You see, things had started well. We can go back and we read of this in the book of Acts. His missionary journeys had gone very well, despite the opposition, despite the persecution, despite those Jews who were opposed to what Paul was proclaiming. Paul preached the gospel in the midst of it all, all the turmoil. People were saved, converted by the Holy Spirit. Churches were established. Elders were appointed. The work was flourishing. In Paul's absence, however false teachers infiltrated these churches in Galatia. And they started to turn the minds of these new believers. And basically, they were making two accusations. Next slide, Teresa. Here you have them. They were questioning the authority of Paul's mission. Is he really an apostle? Or is he some kind of second-rate apostle? Why should we listen to him? As opposed to those who are now with us in our churches. And they question the accuracy of Paul's message. Maybe he's got it wrong. And so in the salutation, Paul acknowledges these two issues. And the first becomes the focal point of chapters 1 and 2. The second becomes the focal point of chapters 3 and 4. So the salutation, that's what we looked at a couple of Sundays ago. Today we move on and we come to his word of caution. You can take the slides away, Teresa. We're finished with them. We come now to Paul's epistle to the Galatians. We pick up his writing in the sixth verse, and I'll read as far as verse 10. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Right back to the sixth verse. I am astonished. This is astonishing. Because when you turn to any of Paul's epistles, other epistles, you will discover that immediately following his greeting, he always inserts what? A word of thanksgiving. He's not thankful for this bunch. He's got nothing to thank God for. There's his intro. He touches on the two issues before him that he's going to go after. He's going to go after. He comes right then to the sixth verse, having given his greeting, no word of thanksgiving, but a word of bewilderment. I am astonished. I am dumbfounded. I am shocked. I am absolutely floored. Why? Because these people to whom he is writing have deserted. What does he say? Him who called you in the grace of Christ. And they are turning to a different gospel. That word desertion is fascinating. Literally, it means to bring to another place. Figuratively or metaphorically, it means to switch sides in an armed conflict. So we just celebrated July 4th, right? War of Independence. It would be like Washington joining the British. How alarming that would be. What a turncoat he would be. Uh, to desert our side, go to the other side. Well, that is the, the the idea here. That is what is being conjured up by his use of this word. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. You are abandoning. You're playing the turncoat. Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Four things I want us to notice about his astonishment. Here's the first He's astonished, why? Because of the quickness of their desertion. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting. The quickness of their desertion. Those words, so quickly. There's an echo. There's a ring to them. They echo, I believe they echo an incident in the history of the nation of Israel. Uh, you'll recall the Israelites are gathered at the foot of Sinai, right? Um, God has brought the ten plagues upon Egypt. They've seen them. They've witnessed. They've just witnessed them. Uh, the plagues culminating in the death of the firstborn. So they've just seen all of these miracles in their midst with their own eyes. Uh, God has led them out of the land of Egypt. He's, he has parted the waters before them, divided the sea, right? Right? that they might cross on dry land. They've seen it, just seen it, just witnessed it. They've seen the Egyptian army, for all intents and purposes, wiped out, destroyed, as the waters poured back over on top of them. They've then seen this cloud uh, cloud by night and this pillar of fire by day, which has led them to the base of Mount Sinai. I mean, how spectacular would that be? And now there they are gathered, huddled, this nation... Uh, Having just witnessed all of that, now before them, Mount Sinai and this physical manifestation of the glory of God on the top of the mountain. Trumpet blast, fire, smoke, lightning, mountain shaking. And Moses has ascended the mountain into the smoke uh, to receive the law of God. And God says to Moses in the midst of receiving the law, go down. They have turned aside Quickly, out of the way that I commanded them. It is astonishing, isn't it? How could they have seen what they saw? How could they have witnessed what they witnessed with their own eyes? From Egypt to Sinai. And the moment Moses is gone, what do they do? They've made a golden calf. And they have prostrated themselves worshiping this golden calf. Oh, go down. They have turned aside quickly. It's the same thing here when it comes to the churches of Galatia. Acts 13, 14. I alluded to it earlier. The missionary journeys. Paul's missionary journeys. They get off to a great start. Converts, churches, elders, flourishing. And now Paul takes pen in hand, paper before him, and he is overwhelmed by what? The fact that so quickly they are now deserting the one who called them. Why? I mean, I've seen it. I'm sure many of us have seen it. I can think of many instances. I can think back, for example, I can think back to my days as a youth. I can recall in the local church, Various ones, three or four come to mind effortlessly. Uh, not raised in the church, but maybe a friend in the church hear the gospel, accept it, at um, least seemingly so. And there's a lot of enthusiasm. There's a lot of excitement. What was the expression we used to use? He's on fire, right? And they're involved. They're engaged. They're serving. They're worshiping. Then, boom, one day to the next, they are. They're gone. And it just happens so quickly. Even more unsettling. And I've seen this more times than I care to recall. Uh, The individual maybe even raised in the church. Profession of faith as a youngster, as a teenager, I don't know. And on they go, married, involved, engaged for all intents and purposes, going on well in the Lord. And then all of a sudden, it's very unsettling, isn't it? All of a sudden, from one day to the next, so quickly, something happens. And here one moment, gone the next. Uh, Why? Why is this desertion and the quickness of desertion a reality to which we are exposed, which we have witnessed on so many occasions? I can't unpack this fully. Let me explain it to you simply. Here it is. We are fickle. That's it. It's the best I got for you folks. We are fickle. We are easily governed by our appetite, the sensual, our senses. We are easily controlled by emotion, easily deceived by error, easily misled by example, poor example. The remedy for it all, I'm just going to give it to you. And I will be sure that there are questions come care group this Wednesday night so that you can unpack it and apply it. But here's the remedy, Ephesians 4.15. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. Grow up. We are to grow up. We are to mature in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. That is the only remedy for fickleness. There's the first thing I want you to notice, the quickness of their desertion. Second thing I want us to notice, the seriousness of their desertion. Sixth verse, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. They are deserting or they are abandoning three things. I want to tackle them backwards. Here they are. Firstly, they are deserting the gospel. They are turning to a different gospel, says Paul at the end of verse 6. A different gospel. That's how it is presented by these false teachers. We have a different gospel for you. Paul corrects it in verse 7. Not that there is another one. There really isn't another gospel. Any other gospel is a false gospel by definition. Therefore, they are deserting the gospel. What is the gospel? He's just explained it back in his salutation. He explains how grace and peace, the third verse, they come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How? He tells us in the fourth verse. Who gave himself. The Lord Jesus gave himself, offered himself for our sins. That's atonement. That is a substitutionary sacrifice to do what? To deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And so salvation from start to finish is a work of sovereign grace. It is something the Father accomplishes for us in His Son, the Lord Jesus, and is a gift we simply receive through faith. You are now deserting that gospel. The Galatians are adding to the gospel, whereby the gospel is no longer a divine gift. It has become, in their estimation, a human achievement. Moving secondly, not only do have they deserted or are in the midst of deserting the gospel, but they are deserting the grace of Christ. You are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. The gospel that you are now believing, The gospel in which you have made these additions to what it means to be justified in the sight of God, whereby the gospel is no longer based on Christ, but based on human achievement. Please understand that you are distancing yourself from God's grace. You see, you may have it right. And this, this is perhaps one of the most frightening things in Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Actually, let me reword that. One of the most frightening things in Paul's epistle to the Galatians is what he does not say. He doesn't go after them because they're worshiping or have a false notion of who Christ is. He has no issue with their Christology. It's sound. He never says, look, you're denying Christ's work on the cross. They don't deny that. He died for sinners on the cross. They're not denying that. He never takes tasks with them because they are downplaying or dismissing the importance of the resurrection. These individuals in these churches in Galatia are orthodox on many, if not most, close to all of the essential points to the Christian faith. What is the problem? They've added to it. There is nothing wrong with what they believe, right? The, The major tenets of the faith. The fact is this, they have added works to it, whereby the gospel is now contingent upon human achievement, and in so doing, they have distanced themselves from grace. It's like if you take a refreshing beverage. There you have it, a glass of water, cool, crystal clear, uh, ice in it, there it is. It's great. There's nothing wrong with a glass of water. You add one tiny drop of poison. It doesn't matter how pure that water was. It doesn't matter how healthy that water was. It does not matter how refreshing that water was. The water is now what? It is corrupt. They have corrupted the gospel by their addition. Paul makes it very clear when he arrives at the fifth chapter Fourth verse, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by law, you have fallen away. You have deserted. You have fallen away from grace. Here's the third thing from which they are deserting. And most seriously, God himself. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. In the grace of Christ. And are turning. To a different gospel. The Galatians. Are deserting God. The God. Who called the world. Into existence. The God. Who raised Christ from the dead. The God. Who proclaimed forgiveness of sins. Through the apostles preaching. They are. Distancing themselves. From the one. True living God. Third thing I want you to notice is the cause of their desertion. We're now into verse 7. Not that there is another one, that is another gospel, that's what your false teachers would like you to believe, but there are some, here's the cause now, there are some who they do two things, who trouble you. There's the first, here's the second. And want to distort the gospel of Christ. They trouble you. It literally means to agitate, agitate. I can recall as a youngster, my mother doing the washing. And having washed the clothes, she had a front-loaded, front-ended dryer with the glass door. Anybody? Yeah? Yeah, believe me, she did. And in went the clothes, and she would put that thing on. And I could remember being mesmerized. I don't know why, but mesmerized, sitting there watching this thing as the clothes spun around, all agitated, agitated. And that's the idea here. Uh, These false teachers, some who are now in your midst, I want you to understand that you are deserting because they are leading you down that path, Uh, They are doing so by stirring you up. They're agitating you. They are troubling you. And then he adds what? They want to distort the gospel of Christ. That's their goal. Uh, Subconsciously, consciously, unwittingly, wittingly, open for debate, really in material, because the result is the same. They are distorting, corrupting, The gospel of Christ. It's a little bit like the media, right? Fake news. It's pretty much all fake today, isn't it? You just just can't believe anything. It's all politically driven. It's all agenda driven. And what is the goal? It is to convince you of something. It is to get you on someone's side. It is to rally support. It is in order to meet some sort of hidden many times not hidden agenda. It's the same idea here. They are distorting the gospel of Christ. And one commentator remarks, these two really do go together. They trouble them. They want to distort the gospel of Christ. These two go together. To tamper with the gospel is always to trouble the church. You cannot touch the gospel and leave the church untouched. Because the church is created and lives by the gospel. Indeed, the church's greatest troublemakers now as then are not those outside who oppose, ridicule, and persecute it, but those inside who try to change the gospel. The greatest, let me repeat it in my own words, The greatest agitators, the greatest troublemakers today are not the liberal atheist, the religious sectarian off doing his own thing, or the secular humanist. The greatest agitators are among us. They distort the gospel. Here's what it probably sounded like. This is a bit bold on my part. But here's what it probably sounded like way back when in Paul's day. All right, a little bit of sanctified imagination here. A letter received by the churches at Galatia from some of these false teachers. Dear brothers in Christ Jesus at Galatia, we've heard of what God has accomplished in your midst through Paul. You've turned from paganism, praise God. You've turned from idolatry, can I get an amen? Amen. You've turned to the living God through his son, Jesus Christ. This is wonderful news. But we come from Jerusalem, where the church began. And we want to inform you that Paul's teaching is lacking in a couple of areas. We are not suggesting for one moment that he's spreading heresy. Our issue is with what he does not say, he isn't preaching a full gospel. Has he spoken to you of circumcision? Hmm? Has he spoken to you of the importance of the Mosaic Law? We doubt it. We have noticed that he is particularly weak in these areas. And yet, your observance of these things, the Mosaic Law, is necessary in order for you to be a part of the new Israel and to reach a higher level of spirituality. This is the gospel. In its fullness. And this is the gospel we preach. We pray God will open your eyes to see the truth of what we are saying. I don't think I'm far off the mark. I think that was the gist of what these believers were hearing and what they were being fed by these false teachers. That was then. This is now. What would that letter sound like today? Here it is Dear brothers in Christ Jesus at Grace Community Church. We've heard of what God has accomplished in you. How you believe in Christ's substitutionary sacrifice and how you've received God's gift of salvation through faith in Christ. This is all good. We applaud these things. But there's more. You must live a certain way. You must have a particular spiritual experience. You must adhere to a specific child-rearing methodology. You must embrace political activism. You must embrace social engagement. You must give this amount to the church. You must serve in this way. You see, there's much more to the gospel than you realize. You're missing something. And this something is a determining factor in your standing before God. The fact that you don't see it tells us that perhaps you aren't really saved. We pray God will open your eyes to see the truth of what we are saying. Martin Luther. Shall we hear from him one more time? As he dealt with this very thing in his own day. He quipped, following statement, middle of a sermon. If the devil, oh, he blames a lot of things on the devil, rightly so. If the devil cannot ruin people by wronging them or persecuting them, he will do it by improving them. Pardon me. I need to repeat it, don't I? If the devil cannot ruin people by wronging them, or persecuting them, he will do it by improving them. Meaning what? Aren't we supposed to improve? We're supposed to grow, aren't we not? We're supposed to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We are supposed to grow up in all things into him who is the head, even Christ Jesus. We are to abound in the fruit of the Spirit. All of that is true. We are to serve in this way. We are to get involved in that way. Uh, We are to seek to obey the revealed will of God as, as declared in his most holy word. True, 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 and true. But what's our problem? Far too often we will take these things and we will turn these things into identifiable markers. And we will convince ourselves, yes, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But there is something else in my life That has set me apart. There is something else in my life that I am doing in particular. Or that I understand, perhaps others don't. Something I have embraced. Something I'm buying into. There is something about me that is different. That when it is all said and done. Is a contributing factor when it comes to God's favor toward me. It is in addition to the gospel. And by adding that little something, what have we done? Perhaps even without even realizing it. We have deserted from the gospel. We have undermined the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You add anything to that. I don't care how good it is. I don't care how small or how big or how seemingly innocent it appears. And it might be a very good thing in and of itself. If you are adding anything to that in your inner man, whereby you are thinking, no, 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 no. This is part of the gospel. And doing this or thinking this or believing this, no, this is part of it. And and this ultimately is the reason God shows and extends favor toward me. You have actually undermined, if not outright destroyed, the gospel. Oh, dear brothers in Christ Jesus at Grace Community Church, what would the Apostle Paul say to us today? I think he'd simply write again his epistle to the Galatians. And he would exhort us to understand, look, the gospel I preach to you is the only gospel. Grace, grace, grace. If you add something to it, you turn it into a different gospel, which really isn't the gospel. It is a distortion. It brings us to the fourth point. Fourth thing I want you to notice, the result of their desertion. Eighth verse. But even, he's speaking by way of hyperbole here, a little bit of exaggeration. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. Did you not get it the first time? Well, I'll repeat it, ninth verse. As we have said before, I just said it, say it again. So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. I try to think through things before I say it to make sure they don't, they don't cause um, needless scandal or upset people. So I have thought this through. It's not on the fly or off the cuff. But here is what Paul is stating twice in these verses. If anyone is teaching another gospel, let him go to hell. That's what he's saying. Let him go to hell. Let him be. Accursed! It is a sentence of condemnation. The Greek word, we get from it what? Anathema. It is an anathema. This person is now void of all truth, void of all cra- grace. And this individual is on the way to hell. I know that doesn't go over well today, does it? Um, Paul, he's intolerant, isn't he? He is absolutely intolerant. His intolerance of divergent views is difficult for many people to fathom in a day of safe spaces and insecure millennials. Very difficult to understand. The Apostle Paul refuses to accept the legitimacy Of each person's private views. Just because you have a view doesn't mean it's worth anything. It doesn't even mean it's worth listening to. It might be downright wrong. And Paul isn't afraid to say, What? You're wrong. And if you err when it comes to what exactly the gospel is, what it means to be justified by grace through faith in Christ, there is nothing left for you but. The curse of God. To desert the gospel is to turn our back on God's grace in Christ. What is left? The consequence for believing anything but the gospel is hell. It is to hear the Lord Jesus utter these words on the judgment day. Depart from me, for I never knew you. Terrible, isn't it? It does not go over well in our society, Um, not go over well in our day and age. But for the Apostle Paul, um, it is black and white, night and day, truth and error, right and wrong. That's it. For the Apostle Paul, there is a narrow way and there is a broad way. And the narrow way and only the narrow way leads to life and justification. The broad way leads to death and, and destruction. The accursed become the object of God's wrath as he hides his compassion and tenderness for all eternity. How terrifying. We can't even imagine this. And our attempts to explain it fall pitifully short of its reality. How terrifying will it be to fall into the hands of God with nothing but your soul to bear his infinite anger. Let him be accursed at the end of verse 8. Let him be accursed at the end of verse 9. He is speaking in the first instance of whom? these false teachers, those who distort the gospel. By application, he's also speaking of whom? Those who dare to imbibe this false gospel. Those who dare to follow it. Those who dare to believe it. Oh, Paul has made it so clear already in the few verses we've looked at. And he is going to come back to this repeatedly in the remainder of the epistle. No, there is No other gospel. There isn't. There is but one. And the gospel is simply this. We are more sinful than we can ever conceive. And God is more holy than we can ever conceive. And there is an immeasurable distance between an infinite creator and a finite sinful creature. And someone must enter the gap. Someone must act as mediator. And there is but one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are passive when it comes to the gospel. He alone is active. We do absolutely nothing. He does everything. And he lives that perfect life, fulfilling all righteousness, fulfilling God's requirement. A perfect, righteous, obedient life. And then he dies that substitutionary sacrifice, substitutionary offering upon Calvary's cross. Whereby all who believe in him are now just in the sight of God. Why? Because it is through faith I become one with the Lord Jesus. What is mine is his, my sin. And he's paid the penalty upon the cross. What is his is now Mine, and I stand righteous because I stand in Christ in the sight of God. And there's a fascinating word. There's a fascinating word used for sin in Scripture. It's planeo. Planeo. We get our English word planet from it. Why would the biblical authors use that word in reference to sin? Because they viewed the planets as kind of wandering through the universe, through space, through the solar system. And they understood, they understood clearly that back in the garden, Adam and Eve, as created in the image of God, innocent by virtue of their fall, expelled by virtue of the rebellion, run out of the garden. And ever since then, man has been wandering east of Eden. It is paradise lost. And we are like planets wandering aimlessly through the universe. Oh, but the last Adam has come. The Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished what Adam failed to do. And the Lord Jesus Christ has borne the penalty for our sin upon Calvary's cross, whereby when we come to God through faith in Christ, we return home. Oh, the hymn writer put it this way. Enough for me that Jesus saves. Enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him. He'll never cast me out. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died. And that he died for me. There is no other gospel. Our Heavenly Father, may we grasp the truth of that this very day. And may we rejoice and revel in it, uh, the knowledge that uh, we had a debt we could not pay, and the Lord Jesus has paid it in full, whereby we have become beloved in your sight. May this stir our hearts, cause us to love you more. May it strengthen us, imparting hope, and may it comfort us in the midst of trial, knowing that we are your people. You are indeed our God. And for any unbelievers in our midst, our Father, we pray that this might indeed be the day of salvation when you would impress upon them the reality that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we can and must be saved but the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, show them their sin, our Father, we pray. Show them their distance and wandering from you And impress upon them the reality and the assurance of sins forgiven for all who come to you in the name of Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen.